My name is Nick Gonshin. I'm a two-time Paralympian in wheelchair basketball. You're listening to the Pro Sports Podcasters. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Colbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome to the Pro Source Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mr. Nick Wallace-Bruce, and I'm joined by the talented Mr. Corbett Rond, a.k.a. Kobe. Kobe, how you doing? Fantastic, buddy. Fantastic. How's it going for you? I'm fine. Nice. <laughs> Also joining us is Mr. Justin Williams. Where in Canada is Justin Williams today? Today, I'm back in good old Ontario. All right. Good to have you back. And also joining us from the province of Ontario is a a voice you've heard across CBC. He covers the Olympics, the Paralympics. He's a curling aficionado. And he's going to talk to us about all that and more. It is Mr. Devin Haro. Devin, how you doing? Pleasure to be with you guys, and thank you for throwing in that that curling aficionado because it is the claim that follows me around the world. Who would have thought that watching granite slide on pebbled ice would be my claim? But here we are. There we go. There we go. And Devin, we had a competition in Oakville last weekend. What's been on your mind since then? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was w- one of the stops on the slam tour and it was great to be back in a curling rank. I've been pulled in so many different directions from when I started really just singularly covering curling that it was great to be back among the stars of the game. It's just fascinating to me, guys, every time I get into a curling rink to see how this game is evolving, how precise curling has become. They're literally living on a, on a razor thin edge. And, uh, you know, we talk about it being a game of inches. It's a game of millimeters now. That said, sort of what's on my heart and mind in, in the curling world right now is we're seeing a lot of clubs close across Canada. I'm actually really worried about the future of curling in Canada at the grassroots level. I think for a long time, the casual observer has has thought that curling is sort of a part of our fabric and sort of that quirky sport that you go and have a few pints at the club and throw rocks. And these these clubs that have speckled the frozen tundra of our country that have been you know, important gathering places, they're closing. In fact, the the curling club in Saskatoon that I won my two high school city championships after 90 years closing its doors in downtown Saskatoon this week. So I'm really, really concerned about the state of curling in Canada. Mm. And would you say that Canada is the number one country for curling in terms of uh, uh, participation? I would. I would. And I think for a long time, we've rested on our laurels about that. And if you look over the last sort of two Olympic cycles, Canada is not the powerhouse of the curling world it used to be. And I think people need to get their heads around that. And I think Curling Canada has sort of this look itself in the mirror moment to say, yeah, you've won all these world championships. You were winning them when the rest of the world wasn't really 
good at this sport. We've taught the world how to play the game at a high level. Now they're doing it better than us. Game on, Canada. I expect this to be a riveting next four years to 2026 because I know the Canadian curlers I talk to, uh, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, but they're pissed off. They're pissed off. And for good reason, we're not at the top of the granite world anymore. And I love it because it makes it that much more compelling. There we go. Yeah. So what I really enjoyed about that comment was the fact that you kind of called Canada out and was just like, yeah, we're not as good as we used to be. And that's just straight facts. And speaking of another fun fact for you, I actually got to meet Brad Gushu at the airport when I was picking my dad up when he was coming in for Oakville. Amazing. What was that experience like? Depend. Brad's a lovely guy, but he can be all business sometimes. Well, so here's the thing. I just worked a 12-hour night shift, and then I had to drive to Pearson Airport for 9 in the morning, which if you've been to Pearson at any time of the day, it's not pleasurable. Right. So I was three-quarters awake, but Brad was super nice, shook my hand. Uh, His friend was there, and I can't remember the gentleman's name. Forgive me. But we posed. It was great. He liked it on Twitter, and then that was the most amount of comments I've ever gotten on a post. So. So, Justin, here's the thing about Brad Gushu. He is an absolute star anywhere he goes in Canada. And actually, my rise to fame um, is intricately tied to the Gushu team because in 2017, I covered my first, uh, in this capacity, Briar. I, I had covered many more in St. John's. It, guys, it's still probably one of the wildest sporting events I've ever covered. When Gushu won his first Briar after something like 15 tries um, in St. John's, Sunday night, they usually close the Briar patch, the party place at a, at a bond spiel, um, while the championship game is going on. Not that Saturday night in St. John's. And I kid you not, there were literally 85-year-old women all the way down to, I, I think, People were faking IDs to get into this party. All ages, all hours of the night, 3 a.m., thousands of people down in St. John's absolutely bombed, carrying the briar, crowd surfing the briar tankard as Guju and the boys celebrated. So, um, yes, it would be liked on social media because he's a star across the country. And he is just that. And fun little fact, too, my dad is from the same small city where his dad was born. So my dad, no, I swear to God, my dad knows his family. Like they, they were once really close, but then since my dad moved to Ontario, they kind of stopped talking for a bit. What, what city is that in Newfoundland and Labrador? So it's just off of, it's in Newbridge, which is like the town and it's called St. Mary's Bay. Unbelievable. Small right? world. Always. Oh, always in the curling world. It's always a small world. It is. And especially from Newfoundland, my dad can kind of throw that. He's like, hey, uh, Brad, I I know your dad, insert name. Him and I went to this school together. Oh, you know my dad. And as soon as you know my dad, you know everybody. And it's just, you're coming over for dinner the next day. So We're we're talking a lot about curling and I love it because I could do the whole podcast on this. But Brad's dad's uh, Raymond Guju and he wins every 50-50 at every bond spill I think we've ever gone to. He won one in Vegas, a huge one in Vegas during the men's worlds when we were down there. But Ray always wears the t-shirt Brad's dad and he's the biggest supporter of Brad. It's brilliant to watch. It is such an awesome family dynamic and they're just – they're so nice. It's suspicious because his dad was there too at the airport. <laughs> and, and it was just like, why are you guys so friendly? That's really sus, really sus. Yeah, amazing. I love that story. That's awesome. Yeah, I want to get back to talking about how you said Canada sort of dipped. It's no longer the powerhouse it, it once was and you had 
sort of hinted at the rest of the world catching up and that being the reason. But it could also be part of a, a number of rinks that are available to us in Canada because it looks to me like the players we have are still the highest ranked players, but we have so many rinks that they get spread a little too thin. Is that a possibility? Colby, it's a it's an astute point. Well done, because um, that's the other sort of I don't know what you want to call it outlier to all of this is that yeah we have you know you go to the Briar and I would say there are five six men's teams from Canada that could go to the World Championship and compete with the best of them, and I think for the longest time. Curling Canada and Canadian curlers have thought if you get through the gauntlet like Indiana Jones, that is the curling landscape in this country, that you're you're going to sort of be battle hardened to take on the rest of the world. And I, I almost think we're kicking the shit out of each other in competitions here so that when you do get on the world stage, fatigue is a real thing. And I've heard a lot of curlers talk to me about that, um, where... There's just when you have to get up so many times over a year to take on these great Canadian teams, you're beat by the time you get to the big dance. Um, whereas a Nicodine from Sweden, a Bruce Mowat from Scotland, you know these guys are going to be at every world championship because they don't have the depth in those other countries. So when you when they get there, they're fresh. They practice properly, they're rested, they're prepared. And here's the other thing. When you get to the world stage, it's a whole different level of pressure. So when you have a basically a free golden ticket to the world stage year after year, you kind of get accustomed to that. Whereas in Canada, you're not guaranteed anything. So I think there's a lot to that. But I would also say in places like Sweden and Scotland, they've been very professional about building super teams. And guys, this is where it gets massively controversial in the curling world in Canada, where you have these teams that form each other. And some people are saying, well, why the hell don't we just form all-star curling teams? Pick the best person at each position, send them on behalf of Canada, because that's what they're doing in Scotland. Yeah, they now have formed teams because they're the best at their position. But is it time to start thinking about forming super curling teams to take on the world out of Canada? I'll leave everybody on Twitter and social media to rant over that. But I think it's a fascinating thought. Okay. And I grew up in around Toronto. Okay. So I didn't know anyone that curled. I didn't, <laughs> right. I, I didn't know a single person that curled except I became a fan of curling just because it, it was on, right? It's something I watched and I, I liked the – just sports in general. I like the the chess match sort of that, that was played out in each totally. game on it. I, I became a fan of curling, but I did not know where there was a curling rink anywhere I grew up. It wasn't until I left home, moved away, moved to London, Ontario, where I, I actually met somebody who curled for the first time. Yeah. But at the same time, it's considered a Canadian tradition, but it's yep. generally played in these smaller towns, smaller communities. Yep. Now, hockey has fallen off a bit. They don't have the same kind of numbers people coming out for it. You're saying curling has fallen off for a bit, but how do you market curling to a larger audience, a bigger community? Well, 
awesome points. Um, let's be frank. Uh, I took a lot of heat a number of years ago when I talked about the whiteness of curling. And if you've ever been in a curling club, it is predominantly white people who are curling in Canada. And mm-hmm. there was a first ever symposium, and I was grateful to be invited to speak at it, held by Curling Canada in Niagara Falls this past spring, which directly addressed the lack of diversity and inclusivity in the sport of curling. Guys, this is my hot take for you. I don't think Canada is a winter sporting nation anymore. The demographics and the faces and the sporting heroes of this country have changed. I think within the next Olympic cycle or cycles, Canada is going to be winning more summer Olympic medals than winter Olympic medals. And I think we just have to suck it up and get over that these globally recognized sports, soccer, basketball, athletics, that actually draw praise and and eyes of the international world. Canada is on that stage now. Our Olympic women's soccer team champions, uh, the men's national team World Cup appearance for the first time in 36 years. Our athletics is as competitive as it's ever been from Damian Warner to Sarah Mitten, the shot putter, to Cameron Rogers, the hammer thrower, history being made in the pool. Summer McIntosh is a once in a generation athlete. We're a summer nation now. The work is now. How do we maintain our strong footing in these winter sports, curling included? But I think we have to look at the changing demographics of Canada, who's participating in sports, and have we made those sports that are such a fabric of the nation be reflective of the changing population in Canada? We haven't done enough. We've got to do better. Here, here. Definitely. Yeah, I that's um that's a refreshing take on things and a very a very realistic one too. Now, speaking of the future outlook of the Olympics in Canada, as you might be aware, Devin, there is a bid from British Columbia, I believe it's led by uh multiple First Nations communities, and that's to host the Winter Olympics in twenty thirty. Now the IOC, I believe it was just last week, they have delayed the announcement timeline for that particular games but just while we wait do you see it being realistic that canada can secure the winter games once again in 2030 yeah awesome points and it was last weekend i was really uh, fascinated by that news of the ioc deciding to put off the decision for another year and i think it's uh, directly linked to to what's going on here in canada it's a disaster guys i was just up in whistler with a lot of the people really really close to the bid process I can tell you right now that the powers that be within the Indigenous-led bid and the powers that be at the Canadian Olympic Committee and on the podium, they are doing everything they can behind the scenes to keep this bid alive. There are ongoing conversations as we speak. It's a full court press in a way I don't think I've ever seen from the COC to, to make this bid happen. And I can tell you, reading between the lines, the IOC truly, madly, deeply wants uh, the games in Canada, in Vancouver, as an Indigenous bid in 2030. And so I think that was the decision to do that. We're going to have these double, I don't even, they have a now technical term for it, which I find ridiculous, but it's double awarding like they did with um, with Paris and LA for 2028, but they're going to double award the 2030 and 2034 games 
Another thing we've got to keep in mind is that nobody wants to bid for the games anymore. And a story that's moving just today is that they're now looking at maybe like just picking host locations like a like a circus spot and just sort of revolving around those three or four locations. I've been saying that for years. Why don't we just set up sort of Olympic cities, keep the infrastructure up and just cycle between them? I think that makes the most sense, most sustainable. You know, I was at the 2020 Youth Olympics in Switzerland, and the model they did there were they had all these satellite venues in existing communities where people were able to see these sports in different parts of the country. Isn't that what this should be about? Isn't this what sport has always been is taking it in communities, making it accessible to the fans? We've gotten so far from what the Olympic movement should be. It's a bunch of greedy people getting rich off of these athletes who are busting their asses day in and day out. And and the reality of it is is I, I you know, we really need to get back to the heart of it and and which is for the love of the game, for communities, for young children to see it. That's the stuff that moves hearts and minds. So I know that the, the people in charge want to see it uh, in Canada. It conjures up a lot of good vibes from those 2010 games. Look at what's happening in, in Calgary, the 1988 legacy. All of that in- infrastructure has fallen apart. And now all of our national team members who were up at Canada Olympic Park are having to move to BC. Soon all of that infrastructure will will fade away as well. So we're talking about the the, the future of Canadian sport at stake when we talk about Olympic bids. They wanted it in Calgary in 2026. That lost in a a plebiscite. Now 2030 is hanging by a thread. And it looks like Salt Lake City is ready to swoop in in what would be Canada's loss. That could be a damaging loss because, like you said, this the fact that it's in, in the, the age of – whether we like it or not, we're in the age of sports washing, right? So to have a bid led by a number of Indigenous communities, that's unheard of. It's unprecedented. The goodwill that would come for that, given what the, this nation has been through, will be overwhelming. So hopefully yeah. it can persevere, but – we we have to touch wood on that. Well, and and can I can I just jump in Nate, to that to that point? You know, when we look at the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the calls to action, there's direct calls in there about sport. And when we look at reconciliation and the power of sport and the bridge building that can happen through sport, now you have an indigenous led Olympic bid where many of these First Nations leader are feeling like their leadership and their voices have been silenced like so many times throughout Canada's history. This is a moment where where I think we can use sport to help build those gaps. And uh, and I know the pride that went into this bid and the, the pride that these First Nations had on, on their territory and their treaty land. And so um, it'll be fascinating to see what plays out over this next bit. But boy, the, the calls to action, the power of sport, this is all intertwined to all of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well said, sir. Very well said. Now to kind of almost further like double down your points, it, 
the Olympics is supposed to be like like FIFA, a non for profit, if you will. It's supposed to be kind of just showcasing the best of multiple talents. I feel like if uh, the IOC is what they claim they are, there really shouldn't be much of a bidding war anyways, number one. Number two, as it stands right now, I'd be like, you know what? Salt Lake, you've had your time in the sun. Calgary, you've had your time. Let's see what this indigenous group has to offer. They should win by default in my mind. It's like, you're new to the dance. Let's see what you got. Because again, they're supposed to be not for profit. However... However, we've had uh, we had a guest on who was describing how these many non for profits like to pay for other people's kids' surgeries and stuff. So right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It um, it's messy, and you know, if you talk to any journalist that who has attended the last number of Olympics, guys, it's it is challenging. It is challenging to be in these spaces to tell these stories, to, to get access. You stand in what I sort of describe as like a cattle pen, fenced off areas where, where somebody's literally standing beside you holding a stopwatch and timing you from 60 to 90 seconds of interviews where you're having to spend exorbitant amounts of money to stand in that location to talk to these athletes for 90 seconds and they literally cut you off mid-interview. I mean, we are so far away, like I said, from what I believe the Olympic movement to be. And listen, I'm being quite critical. And I'm also aware that CBC uh, landed a a landmark deal of being Canada's Olympic broadcaster for the next 10 years. And we're grateful for that. And I love sharing uh, Canadian athletes' journeys. That is my singular focus as a public broadcaster reporter. And we also don't lose sight of, of us having to have a critical eye about what it is we're all doing here about sport washing, about the process, and about the role the IOC plays in sharing the good of sport, the joy of sport to everyone. We need it to be more accessible to the fans. We need it to be more accessible to the journalists and the athletes I talk to have all the time in the world. And, and I can share some stories of athletes literally in the mix zone talking to me, shutting down those people who have tried to shove them along and say, sorry, I got this and I'm taking as much time as I want. So that's that paints a little bit of a picture of where we're at. Yes, it really does. And I didn't know that. So thank you for sharing some of that information. BetUS Sportsbook is your ultimate destination for online betting. With sports betting, live betting, racebook, online slots, and online casino. It's available across the U.S. and Canada. Use the code PSP to receive a massive sign-up bonus. But when you're talking about, you could you could have stories about athletes and can get them on a rant. Uh, feel free to send some of them our way. We'd love to have them rant on this show. I feel like that'd be... <laughs> I have a long list. I have a long list. <laughs> Sounds right. good. Send us send us a Google sheet or something. We'll, we'll get right. that happening. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Not even joking. Is Brad Gushu on that list? Because we tried to reach he, out once before. He is on that list, and I can I can send Brad a text at all hours of the day, and he gets back to me right away. So we can make that happen. <laughs> oh my God! Please get him on the show so badly. Yeah, we'll get that. We'll get that going. Amazing. Now, this is kind of where we take a bit of a bit of a different angle on curling. So we've probably sparked some interest with some listeners. Maybe they want to get to know curling a little more and want to know a little kind of where to begin. But uh, Men with Brooms. Me- <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> um, 
But what are some common mistakes that curlers make and how can it be avoided? Oh, God. Uh, Well, first and foremost, let's get over the stereotype of who the curler is, because I think for a long time we've thought it's beer bellies. Um, You know, they used to smoke cigarettes on the ice. Did you guys know this? In curling rinks, they actually had ashtrays in the middle of the sheets for people to dab their cigarettes (laughs) while they were curling. I think Um, I read that in a book. It's like things to know in your pooping book. I think that was one of the facts. (laughs) Yeah, so that was a real thing. What are some some common um, mistakes? Listen, a lot of people fall and slip and slide all over the ice. Please don't lie on the ice or have your knees on the ice for a really long time because your knees are warmer than the ice. And what you don't know is you're actually melting holes into the curling rink. And I have seen it so many times where people will will just stay on the ice and watch their rock and get up and realize they literally have left divots in the in the ice because of their body lying, their hot body on the sheet. Um, so that's rule number one. It's not as easy as it looks. Everybody thinks it is, but then they get down. I took a bunch of Olympic swimmers, you guys, curling for the first time when the World Cup was here at the end of October. They were pretty arrogant, you know, swimmer swimmer bods. They're pretty ripped. They're in great shape. And then they get down in the hack, which are the, the rubber little footy things at the end of the sheet that you put your foot in to push off on. They were fools. They were sliding and falling and slipping. My concern is that they were going to pull a growing or something before their uh, World Cup races, but they were sore. I saw them at the swimming pool. Uh, yeah, they were uh, they were sore. So they, um, it's not easy for the for the greatest athletes. And have some fun with it. Like curling is a blast. Get out on a sheet, uh, find a bunch of friends and go and throw some rocks because I think once you do it and get a sense of how hard it is to slide that 42 pound piece of granite so precise that it stops in the middle of the rings, you really get a love for it. And I would say that about anything, like really and truly, I have covered everything from wrestling to bodybuilding to taekwondo to judo to every sport under the sun and you kind of go what the hell is this and then you learn the nuance of it and gain an appreciation and i would say that's the same with curling wow again i had no (laughs) idea about the knee thing i remember i went curling for uh for school a couple times and that was really fun actually but again with the 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 pad thing you're talking about i was sliding it was horrible but it was fun i really enjoyed it and it's weird after the first time like my abs were sore i don't know if that if that makes sense Oh yeah, core. You've got to, your stabilizer muscles. You've got to get that core in shape. You, you, curlers are ripped now. Like they are doing workouts, hit workouts. It's it's wild. In fact, Brad Jacobs and his team out of Northern Ontario, I called them the bad boys of curling. They sort of burst onto the scene. 2013, they won the Briar, then they won Olympic gold, and they were they were fist pumping, brash kind of bros, and they sort of changed. The face of curling, right? They were ripped. Their muscles were popping out of their shirts, and and now people are training like like intense athletes. It's fascinating to watch. It's about damn time, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm gonna switch it up a bit because you mentioned Summer McIntosh, and you mentioned her as a once in a generation talent. Now, when it when it comes to swimmers, unless you're directly a part of that community, of swimmer success is pretty much judged on Olympic medals. Do you think she's in the perfect sort of space 
to just dominate in Paris. I've been waiting uh, to be asked this on the record um, because I'm going to say it right now and hopefully this age as well. And I hope Summer doesn't feel a lot of pressure by this. I think Summer McIntosh is going to be Canada's greatest Olympian ever. I think she's going to win more medals than any other Canadian athlete ever has at the Olympics. Her meteoric trajectory is mind-boggling. I was in Sarasota, Florida with her just recently. She's 16 years old and she's she's repping out push-ups with a 45-pound weight on her back in a way that I've never seen. She's up at 4.45 every morning to get into the pool, to train, to go to dry land training, to do school, to have a nap, to do more dry land training, and to do two more hours in the pool. I think in Paris, if she is put in the events I think she's put in, I think she's going to win six medals at, at Paris. And she's only 16 years old. She has two or three more Olympics ahead of her. And I would say at the World Championships in Fukuoka, Japan, she might break two or three world records and challenge Katie Ledecky for the most dominant swimmer at that event. How's that for a synopsis? <laughs> That's quite the hot take. <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling. And I was with her, her sister, Brooke McIntosh, who's a 17-year-old figure skater who, who's going to go to the Olympics and was at the Youth Olympics in 2020. And I interviewed her and her mom, Jill, competed for Canada in swimming at the 1984 Olympics. I sat down with their dad the other day at their home, you guys. And I said, so, Dad, what's your athletic uh, claim to fame here? And he played hockey and, and baseball growing up, but that's a, as much as it gets there. But what an incredible family. They're, they're the perfect parents for these two young women who are just humble as it gets, the hardest working athletes I've ever seen, massively supportive sisters. Summer's got the, the best support system around them. And I would say that's so important for these young women. I think of many young women who've sort of, you know, bolted onto the athletic scene and just haven't had the right support around them to keep them, you know, mentally healthy, physically healthy, emotionally and spiritually healthy and and are overwhelmed by that. And I think we're learning a lot about having the right people around these specifically young women, but young men who, who rise to fame seemingly overnight and don't know how to handle it. And I think Summer has her her mom who knows what it takes. Her dad is is just as grounded as it gets. It's just so wonderful to see, and and I can't wait to see what Summer does. Every time she's in the pool, she is breaking a world junior record, a Canadian record. That's been the case for the last three years, and I'm telling you, buckle up for the world championships in July in Japan because she is going to just make another splash on a long list of splashes all the way to Paris. Justin, you take a note? You're ready to make a wager? Oh, a thousand percent. Morocco <laughs> made me money and so will she. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. She'll be 16 at her second world championship. She's already won four medals at a world championship, including two golds. So it's just 
it's special, guys. I get goosebumps. I, I'll tell you this. I'm doing a big feature on her that will roll out in March. But I, I sat down with the the godfather of functional fitness. His name's Vern Gambata. He wrote the book on functional fitness, worked with Michael Jordan, worked with U.S. athletes, greatness, NFL, all of it. I looked at him. I said, how good can summer be? He looked at me dead in the eyes. He says he has a look Michael Jordan used to have when he would practice. I got goosebumps. Incredible stuff. Wow. Yeah, yeah, Devin, you've covered a number of games, and you've you've seen so many special moments. Take us through some of those. What's been some of the the highlights that you've seen that'll live with you forever? Yeah. Oh man, I almost get emotional when you say that because I, I go back to so many really awesome sporting moments. I I think about the Canadian women's soccer team winning gold at Yokohama Stadium on a sweltering night just outside of Tokyo. I nearly passed out in the press box, guys. <laughs> like, I, you know, it, it was such an incredible thing to cover those games. I was, you know, I, I was, I think, one of few Canadian reporters to stay for 53 days to cover the Olympics and Paralympics. And you really felt like you were part of the athlete's journey because your family couldn't be there. And we're supposed to be objective, but how could you be objective in that historic moment? Sinclair buckling on the pitch and everybody surrounding her. You could hear the screams of elation echoing through this empty stadium. To be on the pitch with all of them when they won is something I will never forget. Like I said, I almost passed out. I had to write our lead file on deadline for this defining moment and... That's a that's a night I'll never forget because I had to write first the first part of the file in the press box, dripping sweat, thirty five degrees at twelve thirty a.m. because it had went to to penalties. Then I raced down to the to the pitch to get the interviews, but then my ride was leaving the stadium. I'm riding in the back of the car on the way to my hotel, a rewrite, and then. I finally finished my final write through at 4 a.m. with all the quotes and all the reaction. And it's a night and a morning and a situation I'll never forget. I think about Greg Stewart, the seven foot shot putter that his entire life, a Paralympian, um, waited for this moment, won gold and shot put for Canada. What else stands to mind? I was in Eugene, Oregon for the World Athletics Championships and, of course, the arrogant American sprinters who had swept the individual podiums in the 100 and 200 meter sprints. So cocky, they didn't even do interviews with us in the mix zone in the prelims and, and looked at me and said, we'll do interviews when we win gold after the relay the following night. And then, of course, the Canadian Quartet, 25 years after a Saturday night in Georgia, stun the world another canadian foursome stunning the world and winning gold to grass with a legendary push to to beat the the americans on american soil the 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 historic hayward field was stunned guys i hope you can hear the passion in my voice when i get to talk about our canadian sporting heroes um our wheelchair curling team that overcame a devastating semifinal loss in pyeongchang to win bronze and on and on and on i think i have the greatest job in the world because i get to bear witness to some incredible moment but human experiences i'll never know what it's like to sprint to kick a penalty 
to do everything these extraordinary athletes do, but I know what it's like to know joy and agony and every emotion in between. I think that's a human experience, and that's what I try and bring out in my reporting every day I show up at a at a venue. And it, it's just awesome uh, to be able to elevate our sporting heroes in, in the small way that I get to do in my career. We love that. And we, we did feel that passion. And yeah, it's energizing. It's energizing to hear what's, what sports can do. We've, we've had a tough couple of years globally, but sports can be the way that uh, unites us and, and lifts us up and motivates us once again to reach heights that we didn't think were possible. Amen. Amen. It is it, To me, sport has always been about the collective, about the collective joy and, and sorrow we all experience in a, in a win and a loss, whether it be an athlete or a team. And I really, I really believe in the power of sport for community building. And you're right, it's, it has been tough. But haven't we been reminded when we see the scenes of, of jubilant, Moroccan fans and scenes in Argentina and and in France and even the way Canada came together to watch the men's national team and people getting to show up in venues again it's a special thing and uh, and we need it and we've missed it and it's back yes indeed it is Devin before we get you out of here there's a few final questions you just kind of want to pump your way these are fun little silly questions <laughs> okay I'll do my best all right. So the first one is, where can our fans find you on social media? If you don't follow me on Twitter, I apologize in advance. I'm at Devin with an I underscore Haru, H-E-R-O-U-X. I apologize for the shenanigans because my plants have their own Twitter account. People love my plants. I have way too many plants. I, I drink a ridiculous amount of coffee, so people are fascinated by my coffee journeys and my scarf and fashion. Uh, and sport. Yes, I, I do that too. I cover sport too. Um, so they can follow me there. And, and my whole thing since I've been on Twitter is that I want to take people on the journey. So I do a lot of walk and talks and almost like Rick Mercer rants wherever I go in the world. And I also tweet about my 7-Eleven escapades like I did. 7-Eleven was my diet in Tokyo because it was basically the only place we could go. And that became big in Japan. I was in the New York Times and everywhere in between um, about 7-Eleven. I never know what the hell is going to stick, but people found that wildly relatable. So they can follow me there. I'm on Instagram at dr. Haru, you can follow me there as well. I do a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff on there in my stories when when I'm at venues uh, as well. And then at cbcsports.ca, I'm doing a lot of writing um, and have a lot of features and and opinion pieces on there. And I've got a bunch of features I'm really excited about and, and an important investigation that I can't talk too much about that will be rolling out in the new year, which I think will be pretty groundbreaking as well. So you guys are hearing this first. and. Uh, our, our whole team and, and my colleagues are working uh, feverishly on that, and I'm proud of that, and, and that'll be rolling out in the new year. So those are the places I am, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that curling show with the legendary Colleen Jones every Thursday night on CBC Sports YouTube, where we don't have a script. We never know what the hell is going to happen next on the show, um, and we just have a lot of fun. So uh, if you can't find us there, I don't know where you are. Thank you so much for sharing that little bit of a teaser for your promotion and everything else. And last but not least, before we get you out of here, 
Have you, sir, ever had a poutine before? A poutine? Yes. I have. Late at night in Saskatoon, downtown Saskatoon. <laughs> and it wasn't the best. Oh, well, I mean, I'm from Ontario, but I frequent uh, Saskatchewan very often. So I can kind of relate that Saskatoon isn't exactly known for their poutines. <laughs> However, what is your poutine of choice? Uh, honestly, what, what's that, what's that, um, that chain called? Is it, um, there's New York fries and smokes smokes poutinery, right? Yeah. Guys, it was a long time ago and I don't think I was in the right mind. Let me just say that when I was ordering it, all I remember is I got halfway through whatever the hell I ordered (laughs) and I couldn't eat another bite. They put I think they put everything they had in the kitchen on it, and I was done, and I felt I felt the effects of it the next morning. Well, I mean, I am so sorry. It's a great weight loss program. <laughs> eat once, don't eat the next day. But anyways, Devin, thank you so much for coming on. I gave you a follow on Twitter, by the way, just a little FYI for you. Beauty. Um, and I look forward to uh, stocking your posts and flowers. Hey, awesome, guys. Appreciate you. Keep up the great work. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website www.prosportspodcasters.com. On our website, you will find our sports blog, full podcast library, access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our insider tips, sponsor giveaways, and insider newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcasters experience. Where no sport is left behind.